normally do on Wednesday nights is just go through a, a Bible study of a book of a Bible. Last year we went through Romans from September to May, and then in the summer I did a few other things. Uh, but about once every decade, I do something a little bit different. And this was the decade, that this was the last year. Uh, so from August through May, what, what, I'm, what I'm doing is taking you through a study about the Christian faith. Uh, and I titled it The Beginning of a Movement, because what we need to realize is Christianity is a movement. What Jesus did is a movement that radically changed the world and did something that was impossible before that, give humanity an opportunity to come to God through Jesus. And so the, the, the first half of the year, back in the, the fall, and early winter of 2019, uh, we looked at Jesus and what Jesus did in coming to the world and all the things associated with that. Now, through, the, through May, we're going to look at the, really, the early church. Now, the church didn't call itself, you know, well, they call itself church, but you know, Christianity, Christians didn't call themselves Christians. But the word Christian is mentioned three times in the New Testament. It's basically a derogatory term. They call themselves believers, disciples, followers of the way. And so what I'm going to talk about for the next four months is the way, this new way that came about. And to see the church and what the church did and the transformation of lives and to see how that early church functioned and how, how the things they did. Uh, and I'm going to begin that still before I get to the, you know, the church, which I'll just probably get in a few weeks. I'm going to begin with some things that Jesus said. Some things that Jesus said to lay really the foundation of what the church is to do. And this week uh, and next week. Uh, we're looking at kind of the things that Christ, at the very end of his time here on earth, uh, summed some things up and, and said, this is it. People, you know, there's battles all the time about what the church is. You know, our, our, our friends and the Methodists, our friends there, they're going through some internal struggles as a denomination, trying to define what it is there to be. And they're struggling with that, and I understand that. Um, we struggle a lot. Uh, churches in our area are struggling. Some of them are struggling. Because they're, they're, they're losing sight of the things that Christ wants. Christ made it very simple. What he expects of his church is extremely simple. And tonight we come to the simplest of things. In Matthew 22, we're in the last week of, of, of Christ's life. Well, last week, we're in the week of, of his death. It's the week of the Passion. It's on Tuesday. And uh, in chapter 22... They're, they're putting Jesus to the test. I think I mentioned this some uh, last fall. And, you know, the, the Pharisees came to, to test him, to trip him up. They failed. The Sadducees came to trip him up, and they failed. And so I want to pick up in chapter 22 with um, verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, which, by the way, did not bother them at all, they gathered themselves together. And one of them, a lawyer or a scribe, an expert in the law, asked him a question, testing him. Now, the idea of testing can be the trick or to prove. And what's actually happening now in this part is fairly common back then. They're, they would ask each other in the rabbinic um, method, in, in the, with the scribes and rabbis, and they would ask these deep theological questions. We, we do that. In fact, yesterday in the staff, we were discussing, uh, and after our staffing, some uh, theological issues, some of them fairly deep. Uh, so it's an important thing to do. So he came to Jesus and said, verse 36, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, as I shared last year, <clears throat> last fall, and I shared it in a sermon series in September as well, 
The Jews had taken Judaism and reduced it down to the law, all about the law. The, relation, the idea of a relational aspect with God was gone. Uh, they even took the Ten Commandments, and beyond the Ten Commandments, they took all the other laws and regulations in, in the Old Testament scriptures. And they, they had come up with this system, and they had commentaries on the system, oral traditions. So Judaism was unbelievably complicated. Because it was complicated, oftentimes they wanted to simplify things. And it was a common question or a common discussion. What is the greatest of something? What is the most important of the laws? And so asking Jesus this question actually is legitimate. It really isn't so much a trick question as to see where Jesus falls within the rabbinic tradition, which Jesus is not a part of the rabbinic tradition. So they ask him this, and then Jesus gives this answer. He says, from verse 37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now this actually isn't part of the law, not part of the Ten Commandments, all the other laws that came after it. This is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6, Starting in verse 4 or 5, right in there, there was something there called the Shema. The word Shema comes from the phrase here. In uh, six, chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, verse 4, it begins the, the, the part that matters. Hear, O Israel, hear, Shema. And the Shema was something that was quoted by the Jews every day. The Shema, in, in chapter 6, verse 5, is to the Jews, in Deuteronomy 6, 5, what John three sixteen is to us. Only more so because it was the absolute fundamental thing of their life that set them off on everything. It was, their, it was their pillar, it was their guide. And here's what it says. You know, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And in Deuteronomy 6, 5, it says might. Here it says mind. In Mark's quotation of this, it says strength and mind. Really, there's no difference. What it meant was this. Love God with everything you have. Now, here is the critical thing. While most likely... In almost most positively, Jesus spoke Aramaic when Matthew and Mark and the others translated or took it and put it into a language. It was Greek. And so the word for the word love becomes vital, critically important. If you have grown up in church or spent any time in church, at some point you have probably heard me preach or somebody preached that the fundamental word for love is the word agape. I remember in the 80s, it was popular to name churches agape, agape fellowship. The rest of the world had no clue what it is. Here's something we learned. When you name your church with a Greek or Latin phrase or word, most people have no clue to what you mean. What is koinonia? It means community. So why didn't you just use community? Because we wanted, you know, we wanted to be spiritual. What is agape? Love. Why didn't you just call yourself love fellowship? Because agape sounds more spiritual. Yeah, I don't know. But the word agape is a word that was rarely used in modern Greek culture back then. They just didn't use the word. The words they commonly used for love was phileo, which we have, which means an affection, or eros, which we get our word erotic from. That was the common word. Today, when we use the word love, it's usually in English used in the most common way, vernacular, the equivalent of eros. You fall in love with somebody, you know, you know, you know it's a love story, you know, love this, love that. It's, it's used in that way. Eros is a fundamentally selfish word. 
which was not a problem for the Greeks. Because in Greek culture and Roman culture, you were fundamentally selfish. That's how you lived your life. You lived it for you. And we understand in many times, in many ways, love today is fundamentally selfish. It's what you get out of it. And if you're not getting what you need out of it, you move from one person to another. You fall in love with someone else, etc., etc., etc. That was not the word used. The word was the word agape. And agape has a meaning in the New Testament that becomes very unique and specific to Christians. We, we oftentimes just say, well, it's God's kind of love. Well, what does that mean? Agape is a self-giving, sacrificial love that puts the betterment of the other person ahead of yourself. It's the opposite of what we think of eros. It's not putting ourselves first. It's the opposite. So to love the Lord your God, to agape him, agapao him, with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your mind, means you take everything you have and you put God ahead of you. Which, by the way, is the very definition and definitive idea of worship. What is to worship? It is to bow down before God and proclaim that he is Lord and give yourself to him in total allegiance. What is the concept of faith in Christ or trusting Christ? It is to take your life and give your life to Jesus and trust him with what, everything you have because you're incapable of saving yourself. It is the common biblical idea that our relationship with God, whether it's through worship or the concept of love or the concept of faith, is the concept, the idea of we take us and we give us to God because we belong to him above all else. Period. There is no other concept in the New Testament or even the Old Testament that is acceptable in terms of relationship with God. He gets all of us. We put him first. We honor him. Jesus says, foremost above all, love the Lord your God. They would all agree with that, but he said, hang on a second. There's a second one that is likened to him. Second does not mean it's less important, but in terms of prioritizing. The reason it's not less important, because the same word is used, the word love. He says this, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, here's the thing. That is taken from Leviticus 19.18. By the way, how do I say this? I'll just say it. The really important stuff in the Old Testament is almost always quoted are referred to in the New Testament. What's the most important verses in the Old Testament? Well, Deuteronomy 6.5, guess who quotes it? Jesus. Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself, guess who quotes it? Jesus. What about Leviticus 2, be holy for I am holy. Leviticus 19.2, be holy for I am holy. P Peter quotes it in the book of Peter. Yeah, be holy for I am holy. All the really important stuff is referred to or quoted in the New Testament. All, most of it. I'm sure you can might find something that's not, but I, you know, depends on what you consider important or not. So here's the thing. He says, just as much as you love God, you love your neighbor. Now, who is your neighbor? Well, Jesus has already defined who your neighbor is. Anyone is your neighbor. The Jews looked at the neighbor as being other Jews, but Jesus was never that way. To Jesus, your neighbor wasn't just other Jews. Your neighbor was anyone else, as he told about the story of the Good Samaritan. So Jesus says, you are to agape, agapao, other people. 
as much as yourself. Now, sometimes I hear people say, well, well, the important thing is remember you're to love yourself. No, that's not the important thing. It's understood that you love yourself. That's the problem. We love ourselves all the time. You are to take your neighbor and love him as you love yourself, which means this, you are to give yourself to the betterment of your neighbor, which always would mean you put your neighbor above yourself. The idea isn't saying that you're loving yourself is important. The idea is saving that loving God and loving others is what's important. And then he makes this statement, and we oftentimes forget this when we quote it, but it is an amazing statement. On these two commandments depend the whole, entire law and prophets. Law and prophets was how they summarized the scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. They didn't call it the Old Testament. They just called it scriptures. All, all of it. How many books are in the Old Testament? Anybody know? I forget. Anybody know? 39. <laughs> Let's test you. How many chapters in there? <laughs> I'm kidding. Nobody knows that. A one of kids might know it. We ain't know it. All of that, all of that is summarized right here. Now, this is Tuesday before the cross. He's not telling this for the benefit of the Pharisees. He is telling this for the benefit of the disciples. The Pharisees aren't going to do this. They don't care. They're not going to follow this. They're going to crucify him in three days. He's telling this for the benefit of his followers. What matters most? Love God, love others. And oh, by the way, in three days when he goes to the cross, that's exactly what Jesus does. In his love for God, he dies in accordance to the will of God to bring salvation to all men and women. For his love for people, he dies for them, takes their sins upon himself, and offers himself as a sacrifice. Why did he go to the cross? He loved God He loved people. And oh, by the way, the fundamental responsibility of the church above all else is to love God and love people. Think about this. If loving God and loving others summarizes all of the Old Testament, does it not make sense that it would also summarize all of the New Testament? And the answer to that is yes. Absolutely. Yeah. When we say love, and we're gonna, I'm going to talk about this one a little bit, it is agape love. It is the self-giving love. It is not giving you what you want. It is giving myself for you. Well, we might say, what is best for you? You love your children? Do you always give your children what you want? When I was little, <laughs> I remember I loved Miracle Whip. Do you like Miracle Whip? I like eating uh, cheese sandwiches and Miracle Whip. I just liked the Miracle Whip. It was sweet. And I wanted to eat a whole jar of Miracle Whip. Big jar. I want, I know, I'm a kid. I'm young. I'm dumb. Why not? You know what my mama did? She never let me eat a whole jar of Miracle Whip. Why? Because she loved me. She didn't say, I love you. I'm going to let you eat this jar of Miracle Whip. She said, I love you. And that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. No. When I got, and I told myself, one day, when I'm an adult, I'll be old enough to eat an entire jar of Miracle Whip. Do you know that I have never eaten an entire jar of Miracle Whip? Because when I became an adult, I realized that's the dumbest thing I could have possibly thought of. 
I have eaten a whole tub of ice cream, a whole tub of Cool Whip. Man, my wife has fixed some things. I've eaten it, hers, mine, and the leftovers she wanted the next day. I've done that. I never ate a whole thing of Miracle Whip because my mama loved me. <laughs> Told me I was an idiot. Still loved me. Now, turn over to John 13. In the summer, in June, my June-July series, I'm preaching through John 13. And the passage I'm going to cover now, I'm preaching through twice in John 13. It's the beginning of the series, end of the series. Never done that before, but see how it works out. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be fascinating. It doesn't mean you can skip them, because they're not going to be completely the same. John 13 is Thursday night of the crucifixion week. Two days after Matthew 22. He washes the feet of the disciples... They have Passover. Judas goes to betray him, and now it's just Jesus and the rest of the eleven. And so Jesus says this in verse 31. Therefore, when he had gone out, that is Judas. Jesus said this. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Now, here's an important thing. Son of Man was his reference to himself. It comes from the Old Testament scriptures, Daniel. It's the way he's referring to the Messiah. He says, I am glorified. How is he glorified? Well, the glorification is still to come, but it's written in such a way, and sometimes there's a fancy name for it, but it speaks of the future as in the current. What's going to happen is so guaranteed that it's as good as happening now. At the resurrection, Christ is glorified. That's as good as happening now. But here's the most important thing. Because he is glorified, God is glorified in him. Now, I say this all the time. When we talk about a church, one of the two things that we do is seek in everything we do to honor and glorify God. To glorify God is to recognize the holiness of God. It is synonymous with loving God. If you love God, then you're going to spend your life bringing glory and honor to God. If you bring glory and honor to God, it is because you love God. There is no separation of that. So Jesus is telling these guys... Now I am glorified, and because I am glorified, God is glorified as well. The cross and the resurrection, the death and resurrection, bring glory to God. So verse 32 says this, If God is glorified in him, that is the Son of Man, God will also glorify him, the Son of Man, in himself, and will glorify him immediately. So he's talking about his death and resurrection. Got it. Little children. He's it's a, diminutive, it's a term of endearment. I am with you a little while longer. <laughs> Not just the cross, but the ascension. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, the Jewish leaders, now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. You cannot come. In the ascension, you can't come. He's laying the groundwork. He's, if you read from now to the end of chapter 16, he's doing the upper room discourse. By the way, when we have our deep fry in July, I think it's July 26th or Friday night, Every year I do that lengthy Bible study. It's on John 14 through 16, the upper room discourse. If you, if you get the trend, preaching on John 13, doing a Jeep, on John 14, 15, 16, you got a preview of what's important. He says all of that. You can't come where I am. So notice what he says. A new commandment I give to you. This is a commandment to the church that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, 
that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. So here's the thing. We need to love one another. That's the commandment. And everybody, oh, every, we need to love each other. We all need to love each other. I get that. But he defines that love. Love one another as I have loved you. Now, how does he love them? He loves them by going to the cross. Now, he writes it in the past. But remember, he's speaking of a future event as if it's already occurred, the glorification and all that. He is going to the cross. Within 24 hours, Jesus will be in a tomb. Within 72 hours, or less than that, what's 72 minus 12? 60. About 60 hours, Joe. Is that right? You're doing the math? Thank you. Joe's just doing that. He's actually on his uh, computer playing uh, solitaire. He's doing that. (laughs) He will be raised back to life. How does Jesus show his love? He gave himself for us. This is what he said. You guys, you 11 guys, Judas is gone. This commandment I am giving to you 11 guys. You 11. You love one another. How will the entire world know that you 11 are my disciples? You love one another. Have you ever hung out with 11 other people much? 10 other people? You know what I find out? It's hard to always love them, isn't it? I mean, it's tough. Listen, I I love our staff. I do. Sometimes those kind of pickers frustrate me so much. It's about unbelief. I know I frustrate them. I, I try to. I have to. I know I'm successful. I go out of my way to sometimes to make them miserable. You know, and I, and I like them all, men and women, and I love them. But i got to be honest. Some of them just annoy me. You know what annoys me? Like, on Sunday mornings, when Brian's stuff is about an inch and a half past where it is, he does that to irritate me. I'm up here preaching, and I'm like, this thing is, I'm like, Brian, in my mind, I'm preaching, I'm a preacher, in my mind, I'm like, dadgummit, Brian. Or when Joe does the announcements. Too long. And sometimes I'm there, I'm sitting next to my wife, standing next to my wife, because Brian makes a stand very song. And I'm thinking, Lord, help me love them. I know it's hard. I know they're unlovable at times, like right this second. And then Brian's two minutes over on singing, and then he's going to pray on top of that. I'm like, oh my gosh, Lord. Help me love them. Now, I say that tongue-in-cheek. It's true, but I say it tongue-in-cheek. When you're around a group of people, it's sometimes hard to love them. So think of what Jesus is saying. Now understand, he's going to the cross. They're going to scatter. And then he's going to be raised back to life. And they're going to come together. And then the Holy Spirit's going to come. And all heaven's breaking loose when he comes. And they're going to go spin the gospel everywhere. And there's going to be disagreements. Read the book of Acts. There's disagreements all over the place. In the book of Acts, they can't decide. Oh, these women are upset because these women are getting treated better. What do we do? These people are cheating, you know, on how much money they give. Do the Gentiles have to do this or they have to do that? And these guys, Peter and Paul, get into a squabble. And Jesus says, you guys work it out but you love one another above all else because the church will not grow people will not come to Christ if you don't love one another period you ever been in a church where there's a lack of love and people are fighting and feuding and they're mad and they're bitter in the church I grew up with the day they split they cussed each other on their way out that's where I first time I heard cussing in church wasn't the last And I know my major prayer is, God, 
Don't ever let something slip out when I'm preaching, you know. Do you realize that churches that fight like that never grow? And one or two people will come to Christ, but only children. Nobody wants to go to that church. Why? Because they don't love each other. Here's the thing. If we don't love each other, we ain't going to love them. And they know that. If you and I don't love each other, they know we'll never love them. And God will not honor a church that refuses to love one another. Because if you can't love one another, you don't love God. Period. Now, I don't know. It's not that complicated. So Jesus is saying, this is what matters. Now, let me just say this. Loving people who are different than us and come to our church was not something that historically we've been good at. It's just not. I know. I, I, and Debbie and I were teenagers, and we were at Ridgecrest, North Carolina. And we were at a... <laughs> this, I, I still can't believe this. There was a church there, and they were talking about a problem they were having. They were having to put fences up their church and get armed security because they did not want people who were African-American, they didn't use that term, to attend their church. And I thought, my goodness, that is crazy. How could you possibly worship God if you don't want people to come to your church? Well, I found that out when I pastored a little old church halfway between Lockhart and Luling in 1985. (laughs) So long ago, I can't remember. And a a couple, a family of six, our church had about 20, 25 people. That came. I told you this before. We had a seminary next door, a cemetery next door, not seminary, cemetery. And I go practice my sermons at the cemetery because I got a better response there. <laughs> and so we had a family visit us. They were Hispanic. There were a mama and dad, and they had kids. And so, man, I got the car, and I called one of the deacons and said, okay, we got the family. Let's go visit them. And he said, no. We don't want them to come because they don't belong in our church. And it was at that moment I knew, because I was just a kid, I was 24. I'm out here. I, only went to, I was only at that church 14 months because I knew this. I was cocky, and I was all those things, but I knew even in my cockiness, I couldn't change that church. I couldn't help them. I couldn't help them. Couldn't help them. Two years ago, Debbie and I were just driving through. And that church remained small forever. Two years ago, Debbie and I were driving through there. We drove past it just for nostalgia. And there's this big building, and... What in the world? And we stopped, went in, they were there, and they've experienced revival and growth because all those other people had died. <laughs> and there were a whole bunch of new people who didn't care who came to their church. Here's what they told me they were a multi ethnic, multicultural church that had Anglo, Hispanic, and they baptized an African American couple. And I said, What? And here's what happened when they started accepting and loving people. Their church grade. Loving them doesn't mean you accept their lifestyle. Some of our Christian friends are struggling with that. But I can love you and accept you as a person and not agree with your lifestyle. And you're still welcomed here. Someone asks all the time, is anybody welcome to come to First Baptist Church? Yes. Anyone is welcome. Listen, someday, 
Now, I don't know what's happening. If, if somebody comes and they're, you know, a him and dressed like a her, all I know is they're welcome to come. That's why we have a family bathroom so they can use that one. You know, they're, they're welcome. Every week, every week, every week, we have couples who are same-sex couples in our church. They are welcome to come here. We love them. Don't approve their lifestyle. Love them. Here's what we want. We want them to come to Jesus. So Jesus will change them. And we love them. I got friends that I love who I look at their life and say, it is a mess. But then I say, for the grace of God, my life would be a mess too. I think without God's grace, what would I be like? And it scares me to think what kind of person I would be. Without the grace of God. So here's the new way that Jesus said. This is the new way. It's not the old way of the law where there's rules and regulations. Too many times you want it to be that way. Too many Baptist churches, we have rules and regulations. We preach grace, we preach faith, we preach love, but we have rules and regulations. You've got to meet it. You can't be a part of it. Jesus said, that's not the way. This is the way. You love one another. Here's the thing. If we can get to that point where we love people, we love God then. Because John says this in his little book he wrote called 1 John. You can't love God if you don't love your brother. Don't love God. So that's what we have to do. That is the way that Jesus said. So the reason we as a church, as long as I'm your pastor, we focus on two things. Honoring God and helping people come to faith in Jesus. Why? Because that's what it means to love God and love people. That is the way of Christ. So, uh, you got through? And so do you have any questions or comments that you would like at this time to make or ask, and I will do my best to answer them in a loving way. Well, I guess not. Oh, we have one. The question is to comment. Uh, that's the most loving, beautiful way I have ever heard a Christian being defined. Oh, that was nice. That's kind of you say that. Anything else? Yeah, how, do you, how do you bring Jewish people that don't believe in Jesus to Jesus? The best way to do that is to get Jewish people who do believe in Jesus to bring them to Jesus because they have far more success than I will. Because I can't understand the culture. See, being a Jewish Christian, you still retain a lot of your Jewish tradition. It's, it's who they are, as it should be. So because I don't, I, because I don't have that in my life, I reject all that because it's not meant for me. The Passover wasn't meant for me. None of that was meant for me. I'm going to go in. I'm a Gentile. The most successful people are other Jews. Having said that, as a, as a Gentile Christian, my approach is always to say, to try to understand where, what do you understand about Scripture. See, here's the thing. Most Jews are secular Jews. Those that aren't secular, that are religious, are very grounded and cemented in their faith. So it is hard for me. For a secular Jew, it's tough because they're not religious. They're secular. 
for a Hasidic Jew, an Orthodox Jew that's grounded, it's tough for me because I can't relate to the culture. But one thing that I will try to do is at least point out that the, the, you know, see, they don't accept all the Old Testament passages the same way we do. See, that's the other problem. I have to know that. And I know that. So certain passages that I know look towards the Messiah, they say apply to Israel, not the Messiah. So they're not going to accept the fulfillment. But I will try to find places where it shows that Jesus fulfilled all of that. And so I might come to the book of Hebrews and try to show how all of that stuff in the Old Testament, because the book of Hebrews, as I pointed out last time we did a study on it, was written to Jewish Christians or Jews who were thinking about becoming Christians, but who were thinking about leaving, who were abandoning Christ to go back to the Jewish way. So it shows how Christ fulfilled all of that. So I'd probably, I'd probably go there. But mostly I try to get them uh, hooked up with a uh, Jewish, fulfilled Jew, Jewish Christian, Messianic Jewish church, or organization, give them a website, go there. So else? Well, okay. But well, we're through then. We'll see y'all Sunday.